right, and here we are back for another fine episode of this great podcast we're in the middle of. We are on uh, episode five in the sequence that was filmed, but of course, this was the first episode that actually aired. But before I get started on anything else, let's send it over to Houston and say hello to Ken. Live long and prosper. Excellent. Well, here we are. Uh, the Man Trap. The first episode aired. Uh, how about generally? What are your thoughts on this uh, episode? Well, it's a classic horror story. Uh, you know, innocents wander into the lair of a monster. You got a series of victims before one, you realize it's a monster, then you have to figure out how the monster functions, and then you can deal with the monster. Classic genre. Yeah. I think that there's some elements that kind of elevate this above the, uh, above the normal Just Monster episode, but uh, we'll get to those in a few. Uh, this episode was directed by Mark Daniels. Now, Mark Daniels would go on to become one of the most beloved uh, directors on the show, doing a total of 14 over the course of the series quite a lot. He would only tie that with one other guy who we had yet to meet. So we'll talk about him when we get there. This, is, this is the first guy who gets to come back, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Up till now, guys have been running over budget, going long, or they haven't quite been happy and they didn't get asked back. He goes on to do 14 episodes, which is the tied for the most. More than double any other director, by the way. He was a uh, important figure in the uh, development of television he even uh, was the guy who collaborated with Desi on the uh, three four or the three film cameras setting up and recording the sitcom. So he was a guy that was uh, uh, very respected in the industry, and uh, both by Roddenberry and by Lucille Ball herself. So very important director in the early days of TV. Uh, this one was written too by George Clayton Johnson. He was a writer. So the author was really uh, disappointed with the title because he had originally named it as uh, Damsel in the Dulcimer, which was uh, it was a reference to, I believe it was a Tennyson poem he was referencing there. He was trying to like sort of uh, romanticize, you know, the creature, the lost love between, you know, the guy and his wife and all of that stuff. It was Roddenberry who actually made the switch to just calling it the man trap, you know, because he felt that that was much more prime-time, action-oriented title, you know, but the writer Johnson thought it was trite. He thought it was predictable, you know. He goes, it's, yeah, it's clever, it's hard-boiled, it's almost like a Dashiell Hamill, you know, a Hammett-esque kind of thing. She was a man trap. <laughs> she walked in with those long legs looking for salt. I don't know what he was saying. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> this is another one of the uh, authors that where the producers were like, the script's good enough. I don't know that Roddenberry needed to put his imprint on it, you know, that the story kind of stood on its own. We'll talk about some of the differences a little bit later, but one of the producers said so much as to say that there, there was probably more art in the other, uh, in the way it was originally written as opposed to the way that it, it ended up. I guess that's just a question of taste, though, you know? I mean, like, it works as it does, you know? It has a lot of the typical uh, Star Trek fare in it. So a couple of the ideas that they they were kicking around as to, you know, how to deal with the character of the, of the monster, you know? One of the memos that was sent around said, perhaps a grotesque biped uh, could be extremely beautiful, but a terrifying young lady, something along the lines of the green dancing maiden that we saw in the original Star Trek pilot. Obviously, Roddenberry agreed with the sexy monster, thought it was intriguing, but NBC had already said, hey, we're good with making this an animal. So the question was, how to do both? which is then how we got the, the creature that could make itself something else. So then, uh, so through some of the rewrites, uh, they thought that perhaps they were bringing the monster on board a little bit too early in the episode, in the first act, as opposed to making it later in the third, third act. You know, to which the, the writer was finally like, well, you know what, this is all well and good, but if we're talking about a show that's supposed to be exploring alien planets, other environments, then uh, we need to work out how to have stuff take place on the on the planet. So that's when they reworked the opening so that they were going down to visit two basically archaeologists who were studying an ancient civilization. So the hope was that the script wasn't going to be too cerebral for NBC. Of course, NBC thought it was too cerebral, so they kind of asked them to pull back on the illusion because in some of the earlier drafts of the script, the script was a, uh, uh, like the whole planet was an illusion. There were more girls, there was more lots of stuff. So NBC asked them to sort of rein that in, and the producers kind of asked him to do it too because having to do like different setups with each of the different girls and all of that kind of stuff was obviously going to make the episode take almost three times as long. So 
that was it. You get a lot of the sense, certainly by this time, of what the Enterprise is supposed to be doing. You've got science going out on the frontiers. Not only are we encountering you know, new civilizations, but we're encountering old civilizations that are long gone and doing archaeology. So if we think about what we've encountered so far, you know, we've got kind of a good range of discovery. And so what, without intending to necessarily build a world, a world that, you know, is supposedly alive, the Star Trek universe, they're actually going ahead and, and you know, building that kind of environment where we can imagine, well, these are the kinds of things that the Enterprise does, and there are certain other kinds of things that the Enterprise doesn't do. You know, they don't land and conquer planets. Right, exactly. Well, you know, we've seen, obviously, this is the first episode that aired, but as they would see, and as we have already seen in past episodes, you know, there's a lot of things where we're, you know, they're dropping off medicine, or they're, you know, they're making other, this one is just a casual routine, like, hey, we got to, like, check these people out, make sure they're a-okay, you know, that kind of stuff, visiting colonies, that just seems to be, like, part of their purpose out there, as opposed to just always constantly fighting Romulans or whatnot. Yeah, so there's a lot of science going on kind of in the background. They're going to land and do a ge geological expedition, which is what we saw in The Enemy Within. They're going to mm -hmm. interact with some archaeologists, make sure they're mm -hmm. okay, perhaps deliver some equipment, perhaps return some findings or some relics or whatever to a museum or whoever is funding Crater. Exactly. Well, that's all I got for behind-the-scenes stuff. I got more as we go along, but I'm ready to jump into this episode if you are. All right, let's do it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. Captain's log. Starting 1513.1. So we are definitely before uh, some of the other episodes that we've already been hitting, <clears throat> which I guess they probably did the start dates in airing order, but we'll see how that uh, how that turns out. So this captain's log was actually added uh, by the network. They said, uh, let's just kind of clear things up. The reasons were there, blah, blah, blah. Let's make this exposition a little bit crisper here. That was also a pickup shot of Spock on the bridge, too, because, and rightly so, Roddenberry thought, maybe we should cut to Spock when we say Mr. Spock has taken over the thing, especially since this is the first episode. Uh, this is a part of the reason that NBC chose this episode as well, besides the monster, is because they were, they were really engaged with the idea of exploring new planets. They're really excited that, you know, unlike The Enemy Within and some of the other episodes that we've already seen that take place on the Enterprise, on this one we actually get to land on a planet and explore that almost. So that's part of the reason they really wanted this to be the lead-off episode. And it seems like they knew that before they were filming. Because, you know, as you mentioned, they do this cut to Spock. There's two or three moments where there's an exposition that seems like we're introducing either the characters or the ship. It's funny because none of the background stuff that I saw really like talked about this very much, but it certainly does seem the way things have been going that <clears throat> that all along up until the final polis, they pretty much knew this was going to be the first one to air. Not to mention they didn't really have a lot of technical effects too that were sort of going to like put it behind. I think that some of the other uh, effects episodes took four, sometimes six months, where this one only took two because you know you had the Enterprise shots and then you had the phaser phasers at the end, so. There's probably something to that, yeah. You get, um, at one point, you know, the qu questioning Spock, and how can you be so cold? And, of course, you know, by this time, I think we figured out Spock going in production order and having a, a character shocked that Spock is emotionless. Uh, seems like it's for the audience. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And then, of course, uh, at one point, Kirk says we can... You know, go to the ship and, and scan for our, you know, the, the monster, we could find a match head on the surface of the planet. So we get a sense that the technical prowess of the ship is amazing. And then he orders search crews. <laughs> right, on the ship itself. We don't have the technology on board to do it, but uh, we can scan a planet like nobody's business. But let's send people down instead. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, they beam down the planet to visit Crater and his wife, uh, you know, basically to give like a medical update, make sure that they're doing oh well, that they're not dead, <laughs> probably as well. Um, 
We are uh, outside the ancient structure, uh, which is kind of uh, really cool looking. But uh, to take some of the uh, magic away from it, this is actually just cardboard boxes that they built that temple with. But so it was really good looking. I liked it. It was good. <laughs> so we start off the beginning of this episode with uh, Kurt giving Bones a little bit of ribbing about uh, his ex-girlfriend that they're about to run into here. Uh, picks up some flowers and he says, aren't you supposed to uh, bring your exes some uh, flowers to look at? And McCoy goes, uh, oh, is that how you get girls to like you? You bribe them? Love that. Good-natured ribbing between the boys. We do. We get this good-natured ribbing, and it really gives the sense that these characters are old friends, that they know each other, that they kind of know how to push each other's buttons. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of intimacy established between Kirk and McCoy. Here in just a, a few lines of dialogue, you know, in a show where everyone's supposed to know each other for years and years, having these kinds of lines which establishes that they are, in fact, friends, you know, is often missing. You get a lot of other kinds of dramas, police shows or what have you, in which these people work together all the time, and yet there's no kind of knowing banter, no inside jokes, no... But we do get that here. And I, I think it shows the high level of, of writing that's being used. Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, like you said, it just takes a few little lines and boom, they are off to the races, and we definitely already know, you know, uh, that these characters are our best buds. So uh, they uh, wander into the temple. Uh, they don't run into anybody at first, but then Nancy comes singing her way into the uh, into the temple, and uh, between the three guys there, she looks very different to each of them. You know, to Bones, she looks like she looked 25 years ago. To uh, to Kirk, she looks like an older version of the same character. And then to Darnell, she looks like some blonde bombshell that he met on... What planet did he say? It, it, it might as well have been Rigel. Like, let's just be honest. Not Rigel. Uh, Risa. Ridley. Risa. Yeah, it was like Ridley's pleasure planet. Yes, 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 you're right. Right, though, that's what I meant. You're right, right. And, of course, this goes right to Roddenberry's, you know, kind of view, his his 70s aesthetic for, like, what the future would be like. Yes, exactly. Apparently, the Star Trek world is just filled with pleasure planets. <laughs> well, it's probably where they'll make the most money. I mean, look at the Internet. Well, and, and the number one, you know, industry in America is tourism. Right. Right? So, you know, the idea that people are going to go to kind of Club Med world because of the beauty or the climate or the climate control or... So, of course, the different versions of these women, they kind of it, it kind of sets up already that there's something wrong, something not right going on in this world. Nancy leaves to go find her husband. Darnell's already been sent outside, and sure enough, you know, she tricks him into... Uh, going off stage, and then bum, 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 to commercial we go, opening credits. Uh, when we come back, there's a captain's log, but this is additional entry, and it's another one of those uh, entries where it's almost as if he's going back and adding to what he was already posting in the captain's log, because he's like, hey, just remember that, uh, you know, we, 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 well, unbeknownst to all of us, we were seeing three different women, dot, 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 you know. In the future, we don't, it doesn't work this way. So we, we've seen this once with the enemy within, and we're seeing it again, these kind of logs from the future, like after the mission, he goes back and adds some supplemental details. Yeah. And at some point, they just drop this, and the captain's log becomes much more current narration. Yeah, present time. Yeah. That was actually my question. I was like, do you remember this happening a lot? So thank you for answering that, because sure enough, I don't remember it happening a lot at all. This may be our only other example of that. So when we get back, uh, Crater has found his way to uh, to the uh, Starfleet staff. Um, he's uh, very resistant to uh, pretty much everything, including a medical uh, scan, which I'm sure at this point we understand. We know why, because he was protecting his uh, he was protecting his wife or fake wife or whatever we want to call it. But uh, well, I'm, I'm sure they're married in common law. <laughs> well, at this point, it's been two years. That's right. right. So. Right, they've been living together that long. Well, maybe two years. We don't know. He's not even sure at the end how long they, they've been there. They've been playing this little uh, ruse of house. So then there's a discrepancy in the description, right? Because Bone says, ah, oh, she looks like she hasn't aged a day. 
And Kirk's like, well, she does have a little gray hair, <laughs> you know. He's seeing it one way, he's seeing it the other one, but Kirk kind of plays it off like he's just lovesick, you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden we hear, we hear Nancy scream outside, and Kirk, like a shot, is like, boom, pulls the phaser, runs right out the door before anybody even knows what's happened. Uh, we find Darnell, he's dead, he's got the sucker marks all over him. I thought it was pretty obviously sucker marks, but apparently they didn't come the show. Maybe that's just because I have more information than they did, I'm not sure of that. Sorry, you can already tell, too, that Nancy is sort of, like, making up this story about the fruit. Again, something just doesn't seem on the up, to, up and up. You don't quite know at this point what it is, but um, Kirk is very pissed off about losing his crewman. He uh, is very upset at this point, and I think that's something that continues into uh, the next couple of scenes. Uh, and then she... Let's pause and think about that now okay. here for a minute. Okay. Um, of course, he's dressed in yellow. Yeah. And uh, this might be a good time to shatter the illusion of the red shirt. <laughs> right. So up till now, if we start counting the number of people who either die or disappear or, like, don't return to duty, it's all basically blue and gold. And it's really in season two where we'll get a lot of security personnel specifically who will die. Seasons one and season three are either a mix you know, everybody gets it a little bit evenly. Or in season one, it's actually slightly more gold and blue. And season two focuses on security personnel, not just, and, and they're like unnamed. They're spear carriers, right? These guys in season two. And so our conception of the red shirt yeah. um, is something we're not going to see here in season one and, and Darnell. And I'm, we don't, we're not told what he is. He's also kind of a spear carry in the sense that he's an unnamed character who beams down, and then his function is to die. As opposed to, for example, finding out that he was the ship's archaeologist, or that he had some other kind well, of... Would be. We could presume that he's some right. kind of archaeologist, or... Yeah, or even just like, you know, uh, uh, a medical doctor, you know, because that's why they're there, you know, so he could have just been some kind of, like, technician who was going to... You know, if some kind of, you know, thing need to be ran. Yeah, there's lots of reasons why he's dressed in blue and he's there. So uh, then we get to the scene that you were just talking about between Uhura and uh, Kirk, where, uh, or, sorry, Uhura and Spock, where, uh, you know, they're talking about, uh, she's trying to make conversation with Spock and it's not going very well. Uh, she's even, like, loading him up with questions. Yeah, no, converse, no conversations are being had, Mary. Uh, we find out that there's no moon on Vulcan. So uh, that's that's an interesting piece of information. And uh, as you said, here we are because it's the first time learning that Vulcans and their lack of an emotion. Uh, and I also wonder, you know, there's a scene like this, and then we'll get maybe two or three others during the series, that this isn't the raw material that they built the reboot Spock and Ahura out of. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very possible, very possible. So uh, we go to what they call the dispensary which certainly seems like the sick bay, but maybe it's the morgue, or maybe it's some kind of other medical thing. I don't know. It was weird that they called it the dispensary the whole time, but that's what they said. Uh, we go down there. The plant excuse is a wash. It doesn't work. Uh, but Bones can't find anything wrong with him, you know? He's trying to think of other things, but he can't find anything wrong with him. Uh, tries to kind of take his mind off it. He should just get up and walk exactly. away. Exactly. He should just get up and walk away. Uh, he's trying to uh, uh, think of, uh, you know, other things to pass his time, get his mind off it for half a second, and he thinks of Nancy and what she looked like. But Kirk doesn't want to hear it. I've lost it. I've lost another. I've lost another crew member. Please figure out why I lost this man. Dun dun dun. Commercial. When we come back, Uhura gets a message from another ship saying, "Hey, you know, you got deliveries of stuff you're supposed to be bringing us." And Kirk sort of like tells him, hey, don't worry, the captain's going to get his chili peppers. I picked them myself. You just let him know that he can wait, all right? Another two days isn't going to kill him. Uh, Spock has found uh, no fishiness in Crater's story. Uh, you know, he's been uh, looking through the archives and found nothing. But Bones has found something. So does Sick Bay. We find out that there's no salt in the body. So we started, you know, doing a little math here, and 2 plus 2 equals salt. It must be a problem. They put the things together. They realize that they've been asking for salt. There's no salt in the bodies. This must mean something. Boom, they land on the planet. Crater's not being at all helpful. So they uh, they ask him about the salt. He's like, you've asked the salt? She asked the salt. What's the thing with the salt? 
So uh, he's like, well, but just out. And he brings out this little, like, canister that has, like, I don't even know, like an eighth full of uh, salt pellets. Uh, and Kirk says something that I love that is so, like, again, Dashiell Hammett-like. He's like, I don't like mystery. They give me a bellyache, and I got a heck of a one now. <laughs> you know, we could forget at this distance of time, but this is written at a time when, when the hard-boiled detective story was, you know, still floating around. And while we don't necessarily think of the mid-60s as being, you know, it's still active, it's only a few years ago where True. movies and TV and novels and every kind of True. you know thing would have really enjoyed these kinds of stories. So, to, you know, to find someone who's still able to write in that style or thinks this is a good moment for some hard-boiled commentary, not terribly surprising. So, um... Kirk decides that he's going to bring uh, Crater and his wife back to the uh, ship. But uh, Crater runs off! Dun, dun, dun! And now we see uh, Nancy with her hand on green. Doesn't quite give it away, but I think that if you're very smart that you've probably uh, figured out something's going on now. Uh, I was wondering, because it's not only, you know, it's only two minutes now past here where, you know, they find Sturgeon, and then uh, Nancy turns into green, right? So... I was wondering, like, should this mystery have lasted longer, or are we following a good story pace here? That's a good question. You know, I think it, it ultimately comes down to what do we want to get out of this episode? Is it a monster story, or, you know, is it a story about our crew and, and their encounter at this one particular location? As you said, there are only so many stories to tell, it feels like, sometimes in the Star Trek universe, so it's like... How many different ways can we tell the same story? Even if we haven't told the story yet, what, you know, further down the line, are we going to need uh, another story that's similar, and are we going to take it in a different direction? So, yeah, I mean, definitely, I think that, I mean, I, I, I think that where they're going for, where this story ends up, is really interesting. Well, you can also write the kind of story in which, theoretically, there's a monster running around, but it's really all about, you know, something else, like Kirk and McCoy or Kirk and Spock, it's about the characters. We're learning things about the characters. And, uh, you know, whatever the plot appears to be about, that's really the B story. So, I mean, there's a tension. You know, how much do you want to make this the monster story? And how much do you want to make this a story where we're going to, you know, learn about the crew, learn about the ship, or have some character development going on? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So then we see Nancy turn into green. Uh, he, re he reports back to uh, Kirk at that point. Bones is still thinking about Nancy. And then Kirk says, what I don't think is the best line in this thing, Stop thinking with your glands! I'm like, first of all, does that mean what I think he's trying to say? And second of all, isn't there a better way that you could have said that in the 60s? I'm just saying. So they beam up. We follow Kirk with this random single camera shot into the turbo lift. And then it cuts. And we get to Rand. Uh, he's, uh, she's got a, a tray of food in her hand. And uh, she's... Uh, where yeah, she's just waiting for the turbo lift at that point. So she's just standing there waiting for the turbo lift, eating the food. So it's weird that she then goes and gives it to Sulu because she's totally eating off of his plate right here. Yeah, there's a... Seems, seems inappropriate. There's a lot of intimacy here between Sulu and Rand. Yeah. Why is the captain's yeoman bringing Sulu dinner? Why is she eating off his plate? Why, when the food is delivered, do they then have a long conversation? Yeah. We get more... Yeah. Sulu Rand connection here than we will at any point up until Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. <laughs> Fair point. Yeah, you know, I actually have that note later coming up when they get to the nursery, but I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, this is the Captain's Yeoman. Like, is she off? Like, this is what she does in her time off? She brings other people food? Like, what is happening here? Or, or, or are they friends? Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, do exactly. they have some kind of relationship? Whether it's, you know, just their pals or something else. Something more. Well, I mean, they 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 could you know like the same music or right exactly some of that Vulcan lyre music literature. <laughs> you know, it's impossible to say because they don't discuss it. You just know that there's more to their relationship than crewmen on the on the same ship. Yeah. So Green tries to grab for the salt. Uh, Rand slaps the hand away. She ends up going onto the turbo lift. Green like jumps into the tur turbo lift. And so, uh, oh, well, here, it's funny. Funny behind-the-scenes story is that they went around looking for, like, 
what would a salt and pepper shaker look like in the future, right? right. I mean, like, like, a, we have to let the audience know what it is, right? So, but B, you know, is it going to look different? Is there going to be, you know, blah, blah. So they found, me, found these oddly shaped uh, Swedish chrome salt and pepper shakers. But Roddenberry, again, said, I don't know if the audience will even know what that is. So they found these other ones at JCPenney that worked just as well. But funny story, I know, right? But funny story about the Chrome ones is, is that that's ended up, they ended up repurposing that for the little uh, scanner that uh, McCoy uses earlier in the episode. So. There you go. Clever use of uh, found props. I just so, brought um, you some salt and pepper shakers. Salt and pepper shakers, you say? They're medical scanners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or both. <laughs> so they cut to the bridge. Uh, they're telling him to scan the planet, looking for a match, uh, a matchstick, like you said earlier. And uh, he's like, no, we, we haven't found her yet. Well, let's expand the search. So then he hits a button to expand the search. And the sound effect that plays there for like two seconds is like, what? I don't even know what they're trying to accomplish with that thing. <laughs> it was just a weird sound effect. So uh, Rand exits the turbo lift with Green stalking her as, uh, and follows her. Uh, and then uh, Rand runs runs into two other guys who like make some totally awful like '60s sexual harassment comment. You know, they're like, ah, they're going to HR. That's for sure, definitely. Rand continues on to the nursery, drops off her tray as we've already suspected, and then uh, we meet Beauregard the plant. Uh, this little cheesy little thing that they've got here. Uh, in a this is really funny in a little memo that got passed around uh, from Roddenberry. He was talking about the plant, and uh, he says, it's fine if you leave it. Uh, if uh, we got a plant that moves, that's cool. Uh, if we even have one that makes sound, that's fine. But let's not take it much further, all right, because it's going to get a little too outlandish. Uh, I would question whether or not that happened anyway, <laughs> but that's just me. We don't want a plant that gives one line. <laughs> right, exactly. Let's not do that. So uh, Green finds his way into the nursery, uh, again, just staring at the salt shaker that's on the planet. But then Beauregard starts going crazy and, uh, and uh, off runs uh, fake Green out, in, out, into the, uh, out into the hallway. Um, so there's this nice little bit of direction that starts here, uh, but that continues through all of the next few times we see the salt creature as a, uh, as a doppelgamer where uh, they put their, like, finger up to their chin while they're thinking, you know? So it's this nice little direction, exactly. This is a nice little direction that sort of, like, lets you know that the creature's still there. He's still inside uh, whatever's going on with uh, uh, with Sulu or with uh, Nancy, or I guess he never becomes Sulu, but uh, with Bones or with Nancy or with the random crew member that uh, talks to uh, Uhura. They all do it. So we're seeing a lot of, of Janice mm. Rand. Here we saw her, she had an important role in The Enemy Within. She's got an important role here. Um, we're going to see her again in Charlie X with some important stuff going on. And in one sense, this is kind of when Rand has the most relevance in the show. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to tell at this point why we're at peak Rand, you know, why uh, her role will eventually be cut down a little bit. But this is the time when we get probably as much Janice Rand as we're ever going to get. Yeah, so I think something ends up happening with the actress. I can't remember for sure. Obviously, uh, when we get there, my book will tell me. But uh, uh, <laughs> I think something happens with the actress. But not only that, but I think, too, that they needed to find more stuff for her to do. Because, you know, we'll have some episodes later where we, you know, Uhura becomes the woman in distress or, you know, the clever one. I mean, we also get Chapel, too. So we're sort of like these three adjunct women who are all, you know, Circling, there's only so much for them to do, kind of thing. Well, they'll also introduce Nurse Chapel, which they haven't done yet. And and then at some point, you just get a crowded cast of you know ensemble, and people have to step back a little bit to make room for new characters. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, because it's a big ship. So uh, Ahura then runs into her uh, her strange uh, technician, who we've never seen before, she's never seen before, and uh, she's almost hypnotized by him. Uh, this is kind of the first time we see actually how the uh, the predator works, you know, where she's um, where it uses some sort of like, yeah, it makes you look good, or you know, it makes the she makes herself look good and appealing to you. But she also does something that almost hypnotizes her, which we see here with her, and we see later when uh, when uh, he he's got Kirk under the 
under the gun. Well, she's clearly both reading your mind and influencing what you think you're experiencing. Because it's it's about, like knowing that McCoy was plumb. You know, so she encountered this wife, uh, Mrs. Crater, a year ago. Basically, just consumed her for salt. But apparently, her psychic reading of Mrs. Crater was so complete that a year or two later, she's able to go, "Oh, you're that guy who I need to now call you Plum, and I need to make these kinds of references so that you know I'm really Nancy." Right. So deep, deep, like assimilation of everybody she encounters. And then the ability to telepathically make you think she is whoever you're thinking of. So her luckily gets away because she's being called to the bridge. Uh, <clears throat> we cut to Bones in his room. He's trying to sleep. Uh, he uh, buzzes up to the uh, bridge to talk to Kirk. Kirk's like, we still haven't found her. And he's like, ah, I can't sleep, I can't sleep. <laughs> and Kirk, and I love the reading on this, he goes... Uh, why don't you take one of those red pills that you gave me? You'll sleep. <laughs> it's kind of like that. He does it better than me, but I love that. That was amazing. <laughs> so uh, Kirk's eating on the bridge. Uh, there's another yeoman up there who takes Kirk's stuff, I guess. Yeah. I guess since that was Janice's off shift, that somebody else had to be up there to take care of him. Bones steps out of his quarter. By the way, we see McCoy's nameplate again in that awesome 1960s uh, way. And uh, steps out of his quarters, and boom, there's Nancy again. Uh, he, he invites her in, and she sort of attempts to seduce him. Maybe seduce is too heavy a word, but uh, definitely engage him in romantic ways. Uh, but she basically, you know, kind of lulls him to sleep. Rand and Sulu find another dead technician lying in the middle of the ground. The announcement is made. We have found another one. Dun, dun, dun. Commercial. We come back. Stardate 1513.8. It's only been seven hours, apparently. Or seven-tenths of a day. I don't know. Yeah, seven-tenths of a day, yeah. Seven-tenths of a day, yeah. So, uh, which would be, what, that's too much math for me. (laughs) So, like, three and a half hours for every point one. So, it's been... What, 21 hours almost? No, not quite. That's too much. 18. Okay, too much math. Anyway, back uh, back in Bones' quarters, Nancy attempts to keep him there, you know, and uh, knocks him out with one of those red pills and then takes his form as he's being called to the uh, dispensary again. Down on the planet, we got Spock and Kirk trying to find Crater. Crater's carrying one of those old phaser, phasers. So I have an uh, idea. Yeah. yeah. We talked about this during uh, Mud's Women, that you know, there's this idea in the 60s that the future is basically going to be about pills. You know, your dinner will be a pill. You'll basically just take a vitamin pill. You'll take a, right. a pill to look beautiful. Right. And uh, we've already had the reference to the sleeping pills. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, there may be a notion that all medicine is basically pharmacology. What's your problem? Oh, I got a pill for that. Can't sleep? Got a pill for that. Depressed? Got a pill for that. Oh, you've got, you know, uh, Romulan fever? Got a pill for that. <laughs> yep. And so basically, you, you're going to the pharmacy or the dispensary where you will be dispensed the pill that suits your medical problem. Oh, the dispensary. Right. So that may be what's lurking in the background here. Very clever, sir. Very clever. So Spock finds Green hidden behind uh, one of the rocks. This could only mean one thing. One plus one equals monster on board. General quarters are called by Kirk. Uh, Crater shoots at Kirk, and he shoots this ancient arch. I'm like, some archaeologist this guy is shooting at some kind of, like, ancient civilization's, you know, Stonehenge. Jeez. Well, not just that. But you can imagine you've got some archaeologist shooting against the ship's captain. I, I just think that, you know, it's like, who better on that ship? You, what kind of marksman? You know, unless you've got, like, Mr. Redshirt, who's all buff and, like, you know, like, what do you, what do, you do for fun, Mr. Redshirt? Yeah, target practice. I love to go to the range. 
<laughs> Otherwise, I'm thinking, she's the captain? You know, he's a, he's got mm-hmm. a lifetime of military experience. But I'm an archaeologist, so it's okay. <laughs> I'm sure this will work out fine. I'll have to shoot the captain. Cut back to the uh, starship, and Bones is on the bridge. Uh, he's kind of just listening to every... It's not really Bones, it's fake Bones. Fake Bones is on the bridge, <laughs> and uh, he's uh, watching, kind of overlooking everything that happens. But everybody's kind of looking at him like he's kind of weird. I was wondering if they were suspicious of him or not. But it doesn't play out in any way, so I was like, oh, maybe not at this point. But Meanwhile, back down on the planet, Kirk and Spock try to flank Crater. They each kind of like get, get on one side of him and take him out. Uh, but then Spock calls Kirk on the communicator. The communicator beeps. I'm like, isn't this just going to give away his position? You need a vibrator setting on uh, something on one of their communicators like we have now on our phones. That'd be great. Finally, they uh, they stun Crater, and the truth comes out. She was the last of her kind, you know. Another thing that's going to make it very uh, uh sentimental in, in the direction of the creature, you know, try to make us feel bad for it. Well, I think they're doing two things. Yeah, they can make us feel sentimental. And there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, the story about the scorpion and the frog. Mm-hmm. So the, the frog or the scorpion wants to cross the river, asks the frog, the frog's like, I'm not carrying you. You'll you'll sting me. No, no, I need to get across the river. It's okay. If I sting you, we'll both drown. That That's, you know, and then, of course, halfway across, the scorpion stings the frog, and the, is there, the frog is dying, paralyzed. Or, Why did you sting me? It's my nature. So yeah, there's yeah. a certain amount of that, right, where we're getting this. this is, the salt creature is very intelligent, can strategize, but then also seems to just, like, com- be compelled to attack crew members. So, yeah. you know, three new people being down the planet, i got to kill one of them right away. Now, you'd think that a strategist would, would you know, an intelligent creature would go, you know, if I do that, they're going to they're gonna be on to me. Then they won't go away. Right. And whereas Dr. Crater clearly just wants them to go away. The creature has to kill somebody and thereby delay, keep them around. And I think it's, it's her nature, right? So we, we have some of that going on. We have the... Mm-hmm. But I also think they want to bring up, you know, notions, kind of 1960s uh, um, Silent Spring or, this is a bit, little bit later, Population Bomb. You know, the kind of no- notion that it's inevitable that Earth is going to, you know, do some serious damage to its biodiversity or its ecology or, you know. So today, of course, we have more buffalo than we've had in a long time. Because we figured out a way for people to make money with buffalo. Right. But one can imagine in the 60s, you know, oh, the buffalo went extinct. As opposed to today, we're like, nah, not so much. <laughs> and to, so there's this ecological angle about, you know, the kind of world-weary, you know, we went through some rough times back in the 20th and the 21st century where we didn't understand our ecology and terrible things happened. And so there's that lurking around, I think. Think of the buffalo. We find out Nancy's dead. And they're kind of like, it's, it's almost, it's not creepy, but it's like sad almost that he doesn't even know how long it's been. Because he's like, it's been a year or was it two? You know, it's this weird thought that it's like, he's just been so comfortable with her as a companion, with this creature that he's even lost track of time. Or maybe it's that 14, 15, 16 month period where you're not sure whether the car one year or two. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. That's, that's what it is. You're right. It's like we've been together 16 months, but, you know. Is it one or two? I mean, what do you, one and a half? We get another sense of uh, how angry Kirk is when he's like, Go creature is killing my people! And then we go to another commercial break. <clears throat> Leaving it on the important stuff, you know. Well, again, we get this Star Trek thing of, you know, the competing good. There's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. Uh, you know, so the creature is the scorpion. It just has to have as a nature. It has uh, biological needs. And we can't be too harsh on that because, like the buffalo, you know, it's got to ha- occupy an ecological niche. It's got to, 
You know, we just go around like, you know, extinguishing everything that's inconvenient for us. And so on the one hand, it's got its good. On the other hand, Kirk has his crew to look out for. And those two goods are in competition. They're in conflict. So uh, we come back to another captain's log, which is, uh, this is this time as opposed to additional, this is a uh, continuing captain's log. Uh, we get a boardroom scene here where Bones as the creature is, you know, trying to dissuade them from doing anything to uh, herself, itself, um, just trying to survive. So here we're getting this other argument expressed. Right. Exactly. Well, and then it really comes out, you know, when Crater says it needs love as much as it needs salt, you know? So we almost have this, like, puppy thing going on. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like it, it needs it to survive. Obviously, it hasn't killed Crater. It's had plenty of chances over the two years, but Kirk calls it a... Crater's private heaven. I like that. That's a good analogy, you know. Him living in this, like, delusional world. With archaeology. With archaeology, exactly. Crater, or they ask Crater if he's going to help them find it. Crater says no. So they opt for the truth serum. Uh, McCoy uh, says he's going to administer it. But I think at this point, Spock is already suspicious. You know what I mean? I think he's already on to him. And so... Uh, he takes them out. Uh, he takes them to uh, the dispensary again. Spock ends up being injured. Luckily, his green blood has no uh, salt in it. So it does, but he was evolved in a different ocean, and hence different salt. Different kind of salt. Now, the odd thing about this is that why would humans, since obviously humans didn't evolve on this planet, we're not the natural prey for this creature. I guess we're just unlucky in that our salts are delicious. Apparently, we got the best kind of salt. Yeah. <laughs> Where's the Vulcans with their <laughs> copper blood? You know, different to the yeah. salt. Yeah, it's too metallic-y. No one likes that Vulcan blood. <laughs> well, we no have iron-based blood. Oh, no, that's a good point. Yeah, but copper, you know, leaves that tang in your mouth, whereas iron, you know. You can cook in iron. You don't want to cook in copper. No. Copper poisoning, bad news. Exactly. Although probably not uh, for Vulcans. They're probably immune to it. Dry, yeah, exactly. In fact, it probably is like iron for us. They take copper supplements. That's right. Perhaps for them, there's like iron poisoning. Wouldn't that be interesting? Oh, An episode where uh, Spock gets iron poisoning, but the rest of the crew is immune to it. <laughs> exactly. You need to put more copper in your system. <laughs> so the creature kills Crater here. Uh, now this is where one of the uh, this is where kind of the Roddenberry script and the uh, the the final script by the author kind of diverge, because uh, the the original author kept Crater alive. He felt that that was a much more like sad state of affairs. You leave this guy who now has lost not only he's lost his wife right. a second time. So he's you know, you know he's a thoroughly broken human being now. Exactly. He's a he's a much it, it's a much more like I guess emotional ending than the way it ends here. Uh, again, is it better? Hard to say. It's just different. So, I guess it's your definition of what art is, you know. Uh, back to Bones' quarter. Nancy uh, wakes Bones up and uh, tries to sway him onto her side, saying, They're trying to kill me! They're trying to kill me! And in walks Kirk, and the showdown begins. Doesn't go very well for Kirk. Starts trying to, uh, 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 the creature starts trying to suck the blood out of Kirk. Spock rushes in using some super primitive form of martial arts. I don't know if it's like the Vulcan martial arts or Venusian martial arts like Dr. Number 3 used. But anyway, just tries to hit her, and it's like the most ridiculous thing, you know, like him t her taking those hits. We also, no effect. you know, later on, of course, we it's understood that Vulcans are really strong. So, you know, for those of us watching it who understand that Vulcans are really strong, these attacks, you're like, wow, that creature's got to be super powerful to withstand, you know, Spock hitting her multiple times. I mean, you know, normally you figure, uh, you know, Captain Kirk hits a woman, you know, just because he's a big athletic, you know, guy with all this military experience that we discussed, you know, he's going to knock her down. But Spock, who's a Vulcan and theoretically has all this additional strength, is just, you know, thunk, 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 nothing happens. 
But you know, I don't exactly. I don't know if they had established that the Vulcans had this additional strength, and that you know. So I, I don't know what's going on here, other than he's trying to prove to McCoy that this is not Nancy. Clearly, here the scary leech-like creature is revealed. Uh, it reminded me of the fluke worm that we saw from that X Files episode back in the day. Weird, like pointy, scary teeth and a sucker on her on her face and suckers on her hands. The creature was played by Sandra Gimple, who's a tiny dancer turned stunt performer. And uh, one of the guys behind the scenes said, you know, for some weird reason, at the end of the show, the creature looks so sad. Does this haunted look, and you think like you're killing a helpless dog or something? But in my well, opinion, like, I would hire. Exactly. I mean, that's why you uh, hire somebody who is a dancer. You know, somebody who can move with their body would understand how to portray sadness. Even... Yes, exactly. Even through a suit, you know. So I'm like, well, that's why you hire somebody. Somebody who's a dancer for that very reason. You need to like the personification or the physicalization of sadness. That's who you bring in. Either that or mime. Yes, a mime. With that, that would work too. You just can't put a mime in the brig because they'd be like, <laughs> "Well, thank God that never happened." <laughs> All right. <laughs> so uh, Bones kills her. Uh, obviously, it's very hard on him. You know, he even says something like, God forgive me, or something like that. I'm going to be in therapy for years. Exactly, yeah. So we get to that final bridge scene, and uh, Kirk has this line, uh, just thinking about the buffalo. And off they, off they go on another adventure. Boom. Viewership on this night actually came out. Uh, they had 40% of the viewership that night. Uh, I still, Yeah, they still didn't take first. But uh, clearly, they were in second place with uh, that kind of viewership. It was amazing. You got to lament uh, who's in third place if forty percent doesn't get your first place. Well, I can tell you who that is. Give me one second. The Amazing World of Ants. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. My mother, the car. Oh, actually, it did win the night that night. Yeah. Wow. So it beat the. Uh, so it was on from eight thirty to nine thirty, which I still think is weird in my life. But uh, the number two show was the Tammy Grimes show. I don't know who Tammy Grimes is. And the number three show was My Three Sons. Then at 9 o'clock, uh, they had even better ratings. Well, no, they still scored a 40.6. But anyway, uh, then in the 9 o'clock hour, it was Star Trek. Number two was Bewitched. And number three was the Thursday night movie on CBS. That's an awful late uh, run for Bewitched. Nine o'clock? Well, I'm sure that's Eastern Standard Time, so it'd probably be like eight o'clock our time. Still. I kind of imagine Be it's a family show, you know. That's true. Yeah. You yeah. think of it more like, you know, you know, leading off, seven o'clock, maybe. True. I don't know. Maybe something else was on there that people thought were much more family friendly. Like. Well, yeah, our, our concepts are family, family friendly, maybe, you know, different. They yeah, had Lassie on at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Bewitched with this attractive woman has to go on late because Elizabeth Montgomery is just a little too attractive for the uh, 7 o'clock hour. O'clock hour. <laughs> uh, the only other thing I have to mention about this episode behind the scenes wise is that uh, the actual reactions to this video, or to this, this video, <laughs> the, I know, I don't know where my brain is. <clears throat> the reviews of this episode weren't all that great. Uh, you know, they they found the take on vampirism even a little bit too unbelievable, even for a show in the sci-fi universe, and found Nimoy and Shatner only passable. Which, to be fair, I don't think that these were Nimoy's and Shatner's best episodes either, right? even of the ones that we've seen already. But, you know, it kind of sucks for the first show, you know, the first episode of a show to come out and only get, like, mixed reviews. However, it's still one of the time slots, so... There you go. Well, you got to figure, you know, who's right here? The people who made the decision that we want to go with an episode that's going to feature how the show works, and it's going to be Planet of the Week, and it's going to be a little right. exploration, and maybe some menace. Or the people who are saying, 
these characters aren't well developed and you have to decide up front, you know, we're going to go with a character episode or a plot episode or... Exactly. Well, that's uh, all I got for this episode. You got anything else you need to share and or want to say? I believe that's it right there. All right, excellent. Well, another short episode this week, but, you know, when you're only given so much to talk about, there's only so much you can say. So that's it for me over here in Austin. and saying goodbye in Houston and Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. Peace and long life. Excellent, and we will see you next week with another wonderful episode of Star Trek, the original series.